Do you want to lead initiatives to advance patient care? Do you want flexibility to work in various practice settings? Do you want to do it all? As you continue your journey towards a specialty choice, let the American Academy of Family Physicians, AAFP, help you with valuable resources. Visit aafp.org meded to learn more. Choose more. Choose family medicine. Medical school is traumatic at nearly every stage of training. The resulting wear and tear on medical students has lasting detrimental effects. One of those is substance abuse. Welcome to the AMSA AdLib podcast, where you'll hear from med students and experts alike. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. What are the factors that contribute to substance abuse among medical students? From ineffective feedback to the stress of the residency sorting hat, to the toxic, corrosive nature of the physician ego, Dr. Daniel Gauger, AMSA's 2017-2018 Education and Advocacy Fellow, walked AdLib's Pete Thompson through some underlying causes. Here's Pete. So today we're going to talk a little bit about substance abuse among medical students, or maybe medical trainees in general. Are we saying that, it, that it's a very common, and how aware are students of it going on around them? So I think that uh, I think that medical students are aware. It's it's one of the it's like the big pink elephant in the room that maybe we don't talk about, like especially around testing time or, or board study time. We all see that one friend who you know, either gains a ridiculous amount of weight or loses, you know, the the 45 pounds because they haven't slept in three days. And like, I mean, you know, you know, when someone hasn't been sleeping for three days and there's the sleeping in three days because I'm depressed and there's the I haven't slept in three days because I'm, you know, using things like Adderall to to perform to the standards that I need to or, or you know, um, and be successful in medical school in general. So I definitely think that students know and residents know and, and even the faculty know that it's happening. So I don't think we need to have this conversation of is it not happening? Is it happening? Like the evidence is in front of you that it's happening. We should be talking more about uh, why. Mm-hmm. Why are these things happening? What is it that brings students to have to turn to this? So, you know, we... This year at AMSO, we're talking about um, one of our strategic advocacy initiatives is the is the overarching, you know, mental health and, and addiction, and and this certainly fits into that because, you know, physicians and physicians in training, we're this we're this ultimate paradox of these high performing trauma victims with arguably questionable coping skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in medical school and, and being a physician, empathy is valued over everything. And empathy is about connectedness and understanding. It's getting down in the hole with someone and seeing it from their perspective. But so to be connected, you have to be able to get down in that hole. You have to be vulnerable. And so in medicine, we value empathy, but then we don't value vulnerability and that's kind of maybe a a question that we should ask ourselves like what are we what are we really trying to do the subtext you know the caption of of the medical establishment is concealed don't feel and so we we look at the rising depression rates among trainees or the innumerable anecdotes of you know, medical students and residents using these performance enhancing things like Adderall. And then we somehow still pretend that the impetus for that dumpster fire belongs on Unsolved Mysteries. Like it's not sitting in front of us, staring directly at us. 
what is the sort of the end result of medical students turning to substances, et cetera, to deal with their with this kind of tr- ongoing trauma? And then what is the negative end result? Like what's what is the problem there? Well, so any patients that we help take care of that are abusing substances, you know, the fundamental thing that you have to understand about mental health and addiction and substance abuse is that for that person, whether or not you're talking about a patient or you're talking about a physician, the substance abuse isn't the problem. That's not the problem. The substance abuse is actually that person's solution for a much bigger problem that they don't know how to fix. And so when we think about what are those bigger problems in the institutions of medical education, you know, we can talk about unattainable performance standards. We can we can talk about medical schools traumatic and, and we don't have those channels to maybe debrief about what we experience and see. And and overall, there is this culture in medicine that is uh, that celebrates that lack of connectedness or so I kind of talked about a lot of different things. Let's go back and drill some of these down. So, you know, drilling down the the unattainable performance standards, for example, you know, some of the things that we could talk about that are just, you know, glaring at us. Like, you know, I sit there and I stare at it and I walk around it and I like turn it over. And it, it's really fascinating to me that, you know, we make such a big deal about resident work hours. Um, so after you've graduated medical school um, and the 80 hour work weeks, but then, you know, most people don't talk about that medical students don't have any national standardized oversight of their work hours. You know, most medical students work 80 hours a week and most institutions have some sort of a work hour policy. In fact, all institutions do have a work hour policy, but none of those policies are the same. They vary institution to institution. And then when you look outside of the United States at some of our foreign medical graduates, it's, it's an even bigger story um, where, you know, we have medical students who are spending days in the hospital, literal days, like actual days, like sun up, sun down, and then back again and never go home. And so the fact that there isn't any standardized oversight is like, that's a problem. And, and even within the common program requirements, uh, talking about resident and student wellness, at least on the residency level, they uh, one of the things that is my is my favorite thing. I, I think it's fascinating is strategic napping, and I'm not exactly sure like what that means. Like strategic <laughs> mm-hmm. napping, like I am strategically going to shut my eyes in this place at this time, regardless of what's happening. Like that's that's just like a visionary fallacy amidst the actively dying. I mean, you you never have like you never have any idea, and you know the message to that as well. Utilize your time wisely whenever you may have some. Downtime uh, to catch a to catch a few winks. Sometimes there's not downtime, and also like that kind of just goes conventionally against what we start out all the way from children, right? Like we tell kids you need to go to bed at bedtime to like regulate your circadian rhythm. So like, why why would we? Why like why? I just I, I don't get it. Like why do we? Uh, say that maybe that shouldn't apply to physicians like oh well you sleep whenever you have time to sleep um but then somehow pretend like that's not going to make you exhausted um and so you know another one of the things that 
I think we should talk about with performance standards, and this is a big one, this one just irks me, is, uh, is testing. So, you know, one of the things that I think we should talk more about with uh, testing is examinations and boards and and how expensive those things really are. You know, we have to take in medical school step one, um, USMLE step one or Comlex step one if you're a DO student, and then you have to take step two um, after your third year. Step one's before your second year or after your second year. And step two has two parts: the clinical skills portion where you go and you see. Uh, standardized patients, and then uh, the the multiple choice part, which is clinical knowledge and has a couple of different names depending on whether or not you're a DO student or an MD student. But, uh, you know, the fees for these collectively are, I mean, you're talking about thousands of dollars just in examination fees to, like, get to a testing center, actual pay the examination fees, probably stay in a hotel the night before, Um and that doesn't even factor in all of the study materials. Like these tests are the, you know, metaphorical sorting hat of of the wizarding world that is medical education. And so you have to figure out like what house, what residency you're going to get sorted into. And all of us are sitting there like under, you know, the magical thing thinking that, oh, we're going to we really want to get this. We really want to get this. But like, are we good enough? And so that's what these tests do is they give you your golden ticket that says, well, maybe you're good enough. And so they cost thousands of dollars. They're incredibly high stakes. And the study materials, therefore, are really expensive because they're important. And I don't think anybody ever talks about the fact that a lot of times your financial aid package in school is insufficient to cover those thousands and thousands of dollars. And you got to make it up from somewhere. And so, you know, all of these performance standards are, are going just, you know, higher, like they're higher and higher and all these things work together. Um, you know, another thing is grading scales in medical school. Uh, you know, grading scales aren't standard. You know, there are some schools that have an A, B, C, D grading scale kind of system. And then there are other medical schools that are pass fail in their first two years. And then there's other medical schools that do, you know, Quart, uh, quartiles and weird statistics that you know, like I understand 7% of to be like, that's just not. Um, so, you know, grading scales aren't standardized across all these places, but then we all are applying for the same standard residency spots. And so maybe there's like a little bit of disconnect there. Um, and, you know, and like, don't get me wrong. Like we, like we need to be tested and like as physicians, we need to be evaluated to demonstrate competence. Like, you know, like we're not graduating physicians from like Chipotle medical school out here on the corner, but, but at some point, like, you know, if we don't have standardized grading scales and we're all like in this weird wonky competition space, but then really the only standardized thing that we have to evaluate ourselves against each other is these huge licensing exams like why why would we think that maybe that's not going to create undue pressure and then when you get into your clinical clerkship years your your third and fourth years of medical school you have the ever famed evaluations these uh, sections after you finish rotation that your attending physician or physicians and your residents write about you that you know can be good or bad, but inevitably count like, you know, 40% of your grade or something. And so it's supposed to be this meaningful way to get feedback and improve. But then, you know, they, you get things all the time of like 
probably competent like student was president and allegedly read before cases like that's like that's not helpful like how do we uh how do we create rubrics for those things and and why is there such inconsistency and so when you look at the inconsistencies and the just like paradoxical rhetoric across like the the medical education system when it comes to performance standards it's not really that far of a reach to ask yourself hmm well maybe there's something to why you know physicians in training you know resident physicians and and, and such uh, engage in doping or need to abuse substances to escape in the experience of being a medical student isn't just classroom based you know getting in the clinics you're exposed to a lot of the same kind of experiences that a practicing physician has, and you're seeing some really difficult things to see. So what's the effect of that? I've talked a lot about, you know, performance standards and testing and that whole, like, student component of being a, a medical student, but the operative word there isn't really student, it's medical. Like, you know, when you, when you start medical school, you immediately become a clinician. That's the whole point of getting a white coat. And so you have this new role that you engage, uh, you engage people with, uh, and it means you're responsible for part of their care, even if you feel like an imposter and you really feel like you contribute nothing. You are responsible for care, and at the very least, you, um, you're very privileged to interact with people in their most intimate, vulnerable, darkest, most fearful spaces. And sometimes the things that you see in those spaces isn't really pretty. You know, medical school's dramatic. And especially when you actually get into your clinical clerkships where you're only seeing patients almost exclusively and not really doing any more classroom time, um, medical schools sometimes don't really have a formal process of, well, how do you talk about that? How do you talk about what you see with each other, with your residents, with your attendings it's it's so much focused on the the know the facts and the do the things and and the procedures and write the notes and maybe we don't spend as much time as we could on the be a physician and what that really means and how and how it can have just as much of a negative toll on us so you know one one example of how that could be done well is you know actually from my own experience in my training my uh, my last year in medical school, I uh, did a rotation in uh, the trauma surgical ICU uh, in Knoxville, and uh, they did a, a really profound thing that I thought was a great learning experience where um, every couple of weeks they did video continuous quality improvement is what, is what they called it, which sounds like great, right? Um, CQI, because we love our acronyms. What that actually meant was that high-level traumas that that came through uh, the trauma bay were video recorded, and then a couple of weeks afterward, we went back and we watched them as a team, everyone in the room, and we asked ourselves, um, you know, what went well and what didn't. How do we clarify roles and boundaries, and and with the things that didn't go well or the things that did go well. Um, what were our thoughts and opinions about it, you know? And so it created this kind of safe space, you know, my first day on that service, the actual first day I had a, uh, there was a 13 year old, um, who came into our trauma bay that I helped take care of and, and had tried to commit suicide by shooting himself. And it was, and it was very sad. Um, 
and like that's a big thing like it was my first day on the trauma service like all of a sudden I've got this fancy pager and things are going on and you know this kid comes in who is you know very 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 unstable and it it the trauma was uh maybe not as organized as it could have been and unfortunately the the kid ended up passing away and so a couple of weeks later we went back and we actually watched that video and we got to talk about those things of what didn't go well and why and how were we struggling with this and most importantly like how are we going to how are we going to improve as a team in the future and so I think that that's just one way or example of creating those those safe spaces to try to talk about what it is that you experience in a very real way and even though it may not not feel great you know part of your I feel like part of your professional responsibility as a physician is to lean into that discomfort for recognizing the 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 greater good that could come from it a few minutes ago you were talking about the culture of you know kind of implying that the physicians are, are sort of deities you know like they are godlike in their <laughs> abilities and super, they're superhuman yeah. especially in their lack of need to sleep and that that attitude pervades many different areas in terms of like the physician is the singular uh, person when, when in fact like they're, the they're human the beings. Yeah. And, and I mean, that would seem to also be hugely problematic. Yeah. So we're, we're just dancing around the physician ego, right? Like that's what we're talking about. So let's talk about it. Um, the, there, that's no secret, right? So interprofessional education and we talk about all these great things and, at some point, we really need to have a strong look in the mirror and have tough conversations with ourselves and tell ourselves as physicians how to calm down and look at our egos, right? And and what that's really speaking to larger context, 30,000-foot view, is this culture in the medical establishment that is, uh, is paternalistic and uh, somewhat patriarchal and, you know, it doesn't celebrate or rather it celebrates that, uh, that lack of connection, uh, or, you know, not being vulnerable because you should be strong and you're the leader of the team and, and all of those things, which, you know, you do have a leadership role, of course, as a, as a physician, but that doesn't mean that you're impenetrable, that you're like immune to what it is that you experience. And there's something that's, that's, very cathartic and, and team building and about being able to address the things that that we struggle with, you know. But this culture is is pervasive, you know. It definitely pervades things, as you said. Um, you know, I mean, I have many friends out on the interview trails that talked about that. You know, there were programs that they went to that you know actually bragged about the divorce rates, and that meant that. Uh, their residents were doing their jobs because they were committed to their patients. And I'm just like, what is, I gotta, what, what is it? What, is, what even is that? That's not, that's not healthy. Um, and, and, you know, we see this, I think one of the first places that we really see this like truly manifest of, of, being uncomfortable with vulnerability is in writing personal statements. So whether or not you're a pre-med student writing your personal statement for, for medical school or you're a graduating physician writing your personal statement for residency, um, personal statements and like they're the notorious struggle, right? And they, it's not because you're uneducated or illiterate, we would hope, um, or that you lack the ability to write 
why they're so difficult is because a personal statement is a place to be personal. Like that's blatantly obvious. A personal statement is a place to be uncomfortable and to emote and to be vulnerable and talk about, you know, what brings you joy and happiness and passion or what, what motivates you? What kinds of life experiences have you had? How have other people influenced you to arrive in a place that you can articulate who you are and what you want to be? And those like we, Physicians struggle really, really hard with that. You know, we have this trifecta of of personality characteristics of this over exaggerated sense of responsibility juxtaposed with like unending shame and guilt. And so when we put those three things together, it means that we don't like feeling vulnerable and we want to be, you know, fortified against the masses so that we can be strong for our patients. And there's this like weird paradox of altruism that's, you know, wonky and interesting and fascinating. And so I think that uh, there is this culture in the medical establishment that says, "Mm, maybe it's not really permissive to talk about, like, let's be empathetic, but like, for the purposes of achieving our own goals, whatever those are. And that's just like, that's maybe not the right way to go about it. Um, and so when we think about our personal statements, we, we need to bring that full circle and really kind of feel exposed and understand that, you know, that's okay to do if you're wanting someone who's reading it to have, you know, that tiny little lens looking into who you are and saying, I want to meet you. You know, we talk about substance abuse among, uh, trainees and among healthcare providers and, um, whether or not we're talking about the performance standards in medical school or, or, you know, the traumatic experiences that we experience with patients or, um, you know, the importance of connection and vulnerability, but like JK, not really, um, like that whole, you know, attitude, if we're really talking about like, how do we improve resident wellness and student wellness and physician wellness, like we have to think about our audience and, and, the messaging and the vehicle that we deliver it and ask ourselves, are we being disingenuous? Um, or is it at least being interpreted as disingenuous? And I think that if, um, if we're really trying to reach the people that this is affecting, that we need to talk about some of these interfaces and how they truly impact, again, the, the solution that trainees have to the problem, which is escape. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson and myself. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Joey Johnson is AMSA's national president. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for listening. Mark your calendar to attend the American Academy of Family Physicians National Conference of Family Medicine Residents and Medical Students July 27th through the 29th in Kansas City, Missouri. Choose from more than 35 educational sessions and visit over 450 residency programs and exhibitors and much more. Join the National Conference Equation at aafp.org nc.